When you have the right recon process in place, it's easy to stay ahead of the game. Put your recon on cruise control today with iRecon, the solution built directly in Viato that obliterates recon inefficiencies and accelerates your used car sales. Visit viato.com. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, executive editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, a plant that builds the Jeep Cherokee will shut down, but might still have a future. Ram recalls almost a million and a half pickups over a tailgate issue, and the strike at a key automotive installation supplier ends. Plus, we'll hear part two of Jamie's conversation with General Motors CEO, Mary Barra. You know, when we see EVs for everyone, it's more than an advertising tagline. We've got to do this in a way where no one gets left behind. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. The Illinois plant that builds the Jeep Cherokee will shut down in early 2023. But Stellantis North America COO Mark Stewart says the factory could still have a future. The company announced last week that production will end in late February with layoffs of hourly and salaried workers there expected to last at least six months. Stewart said during an event at a Detroit area plant that the automaker is looking at what it can do to repurpose that facility. His words, it's idle, not closed. Stewart says Stellantis intends to help workers at the Belvedere assembly plant who are being displaced find other positions within the company. Stellantis is recalling 1.4 million pickups worldwide because tailgates might not latch properly and could open while driving. The automaker said the recall covers various 2019 through 2022 model year Ram 1500, 2500, and 3500 trucks. The company said it has no reports of crashes or injuries, but more than 800 warranty claims and other reports potentially related to the issue. Stellantis says dealers will inspect the tailgate striker alignment to the box latch and adjust if necessary. Only two out of 15 vehicles in the small crossover category earned an overall good rating in the first frontal crash test in the U.S. to include a rear dummy. That's according to the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. The 2022-2023 Ford Escape and the 2021-2023 through 2023 Volvo XC40 were the only vehicles to earn a good rating in the Institute's updated moderate overlap front evaluation. The Institute classifies the vehicles as small SUVs, automotive news, we call them crossovers. The more challenging crash test adds a dummy representing a small woman or 12-year-old child positioned in the second row behind the driver. It also uses new metrics focusing on the injuries most frequently seen in rear seat passengers. However, all 15 vehicles earned a good rating in the Institute's original crash test, launched in 1995, where a vehicle travels at 40 miles per hour toward a barrier and a dummy representing an average-sized man is positioned in the driver's seat. And about 270 union workers at an autoneum plant in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, have reached an agreement with the Swiss automotive insulation supplier. The agreement ends a nearly week-long strike by Local 1700. Chief among worker complaints was Autoneum's position that workers pay 5% more of their health care costs outside of usual yearly increases. In a new four-year contract that was approved 223 to 56, costs for the top-tier insurance plan will stay the same for the next two years. In addition, 
Workers will make $1 more an hour. The raise is retroactive to May 15th, according to Fox 56 in Pennsylvania. Autonium says it works with almost every major automaker, including General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, with this Stellantis plant shutting down for six months, do you think we'll see more of this in the new year? You know, at the risk of being too optimistic, I, I kind of don't think so. Uh, we're seeing a lot of investments in new factories being built. You know, there may be a few other vehicles that aren't quite hitting the market the way they should. But I think like with this one, they've got a chance to to be a candidate for other future investments on, uh, you know, products that that are going to do better in the market. So uh, so we'll see. It, obviously, a lot of it depends on the overall health of the economy. And, but the industry has really recalibrated itself to be able to make money or at least break even, even at lower levels of production like we've seen this year. So I, I think we're in pretty good shape. Gotcha. Coming up, we'll hear the second and final part of Jamie's conversation with GM CEO Mary Barra. That's next on Daily Drive. Slate Money is a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the world of business and finance, hosted by Felix Salmon, Elizabeth Spires, and me, Emily Peck. Confused by crypto? Can't keep up with the metaverse? Wondering why the price of just about everything keeps rising? The Slate Money podcast is here for you. Listen to Slate Money every Saturday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Warning. Your reconditioning process needs attention. Unexpected shortages and delays can throw off even the most routine recon work, slowing your sales and eating into your bottom line. Identify and fix reconditioning inefficiencies to turn your inventory faster with iRecon. This reconditioning solution, built directly in V-Auto, keeps you in control of your service department and puts your recon on cruise control. With real-time alerts and reports, iRecon helps you get ahead of potential issues before they become costly problems. You'll be able to track who's doing the work and how long tasks are taking, see the status of any vehicle in an instant, and make adjustments where needed. And it's all done in an easy-to-use dashboard you can customize to fit your workflow. Obliterate inefficiencies and accelerate your used car sales only with iRecon. Run your personal recon diagnostics with us today and put your process on cruise control. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Yesterday, we brought you the first part of my recent conversation with General Motors CEO Mary Barra. In that excerpt, we talked about the Detroit automaker's big EV push and next year's contract negotiations with the UAW and Unifor. Today, we'll hear the second portion of our conversation from the Automotive Press Association's yearly fireside chat. In this part, we talk about securing GM's EV battery supply chain, new tax incentives under the Inflation Reduction Act, and her thoughts on the state of autonomous vehicles. So uh, EVs, you talked some about that in the opening. Of course, you can't make all of those EVs without the batteries, as you said, and you can't make the batteries without the material, the minerals for them. Right. Help explain to us why you're so confident that you have a good supply at, at a reasonable price and all that uh, for the transition to 30 and 35. Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm, again, I am so proud of the people of General Motors. And, you know, when I look at what the supply chain team has done working with the engineering organization, 
we all learned a lot. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about chips for a minute because I think what we learned on chips informed our decisions on how we went and sourced to make sure we have all the raw materials needed to have uh, enough batteries to be able to hit a million uh, in 2025. And, you know, General Motors really doesn't buy chips in the past. Our, our tier ones are tier twos, tier three. When you know we learned that we had this semiconductor shortage and we started mapping every chip, we have such proliferations of chips, it's crazy. And from coming from all over the world, if you remember, I remember it vividly still, a year ago last September, you know, we really um, took a hit uh, in that third quarter because the plant that's sourced a lot of critical chips for us in Malaysia went down because of COVID. And you know they really weren't prepared to come back up. I mean, we actually had people over there helping them with COVID protocols and how they could come back to work safely. Um, and we did everything we could. But when we really stepped back and looked, we realized, and what we're doing on semiconductors is we've standardized on three families. And we'll get to this in the 2526. We're sourcing and having agreements you know, with all parts of you need to get the chips. And in, in some cases, making sure we have supply chain resiliency so it's not all coming from one factory. And so there was a lot of great work done for our chip strategy. Unfortunately, that doesn't really kick in until 2526. In the meantime, though, we've done a lot of work and the chip situation, as you said, is getting better. So with that as the backdrop, as we started to see and really in 2020, once we knew our people were safe, we were taking care of our customers, our balance sheet was strong enough to get through the unknown of COVID, we started working on accelerating EVs because we really started to see that the customer was, uh, there was, it was a tipping point. And so as we looked at that sourcing over the next couple years, we recognized that we wanted to have supply relationships deep into the pipeline. And so that's what, you know, we, we steadily have announced things to the point now we have you know signed agreements not non-binding mous but we have signed agreements for all the materials that we need for 2025 to get to a million units and now we're we're busy working on 26 to 30 and we're trying to be you know understanding no one knows what the prices will be then of how much is fixed how much is is you know is part of the agreement but I, I, I won't say which supplier in the, in the battery supply chain, but I will tell you, I had probably one of my best conversations with one of the critical uh, battery uh, materials suppliers who said, look, we want to work with you and we understand where the market is now, but we also understand if we create such a price that you can't you know, profitably sell vehicles, you're not going to be in the business long and we won't be in the business long. And so we want to have a partnership where we both win together. And as much as we can, that's the relationship with a lot of times, these are suppliers that are new to us. And so I'm, I'm excited about how we're proceeding on that. And, and like I said, I, why do I feel confident? Because we got signed agreements. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and we'll just keep building on that. And then we also are looking in many cases for those suppliers to have multiple locations or to be sourced either ally shore, onshore or ally shore. And I think that gives us the resiliency that we think we need. I'm glad you made the comparison with the chips because they both have these long gestation periods. It takes so long to build a chip factory, a fab plant, uh, to build a, get a lithium uh, uh, sludge uh, processing uh, going in the Salton Sea. Is there a risk or a chance that in five years we're going to have an overabundance of chips or of uh, battery materials? Well, um Again, I, I, I haven't studied this for the industry, but I think there's a lot of trends that cause us to have a semiconductor shortage of, you know, some of them were COVID driven that there was more and more consumer electronics. But I'll tell you specifically for our industry, you know, as we get to the software defined vehicle, we need more chips. 
a truck has more chips generally than a you know a, an Equinox, and so I, I think you'll see an increased need for chips just because of where the vehicle is going from a software platform perspective. And so, you know, I, I look at what do we need for automotive, uh, and I think that'll have to sort. I mean, there is a lot of capacity going in, but I think I don't think we're going backwards from things becoming more electronically based. So. Not if we're going to have software-defined vehicles. Right, right. But I don't think any industry is going back to something that isn't more, you know, I don't think mechanical systems are going to rule the day as we go forward. Yeah. So what is your expectation for the uh, federal tax credits under the Inflation Reduction Act? Which, uh, you'll be eligible again, uh, having been in the penalty box for being too successful before. Uh, I like the way you said that. <laughs> so, you know, do you think your EVs will get 37.50. Will it be just product by product? And and when do you think you'll be able to have a vehicle that gets the full 7,500? Well, uh, you know, we're waiting. Treasury is still putting the rules together, and you know, if, if I read what all of you write every day, there still is a lot of discussion going on with some of our, our uh, other countries around the world. I would encourage you to look and understand the, what the regular or what the incentives are in other countries. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I was asked this question uh, the other day and they said, well, you know, it looks like it's favoring domestic versus foreign. I said, no, no, it's favoring companies who invested in America. And I'm not going to apologize for investing in America. And frankly, all that the decisions that I talked about of how we're sourcing, we did that before the IRA. I, frankly, I didn't think the IRA was going to be, um, or the, the battery part would be part of anything that got done. Right, right. So um, we are investing in, in America. We're creating jobs. That's creating IP in this country. And I think you know the United States ne needs to lead in key technologies, especially uh, battery technology technology uh, and around uh, autonomous, et cetera. So I think that's, that's the, the path we're going down. You know, so it depends on exactly how the rules get done. There's some things that we're gonna qualify for right away. The fact that we have the battery plants running as those keep ramping up, more and more vehicles will, will qualify. Um, there's, and then there's the manufacturing piece of that as well. So there's several components, you know, the bright drop and some of the commercial vehicles. So there's quite a bit that I think we're, gonna, we're extremely well positioned for, but I, we've got to see what the final, the final rules are to, to get definitive on that. But, you know, as we said at our investor day, by 2025, um, you know, we, we feel we're going to be achieving in mid-decade that, you know, low single-digit margin. And if we kind of extrapolate where we think IRA could be, that could get us to ice-like margins. And, we're, you know, we're, but we're going to work and continue. There's still a lot of development that needs to be done, we are doing, to get battery costs down. So we'll continue on that journey. I can't believe it's already December, and we still don't know what the rules are that are going to kick in, you know, January 1st or 3rd or whatever the first, you know, day of business is. But the other one is then on the retail side. I mean, of course, there's so many layers to uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, even just on, on EVs. But it's supposed to be a point of sale uh, incentive. Have you gotten any insight into how that might work? Or will there be like an IRS portal that someone can get a code that says, I deserve uh, a you know, credit I, for a qualifying vehicle? I'm sure there's people at GM who could answer that question. <laughs> I haven't gotten into those specifics, but I'm, I, trust me, we have a team making sure we completely understand IRA and are, are geared up to make sure our consumers take it, take it, can take advantage of it. Um, you know, but I think the thing, if you step back and look at IRA, I do believe it will drive more investment in this country, create more manufacturing jobs, be better for the environment, and allow vehicles um, to be more affordable for consumers to drive EV adoption. So I think the way that it's constructed, it's, it's really going to 
uh, achieve uh, a lot of the goals that the administration set out to, to accomplish. Or at least the goals that Joe Manchin had for, <laughs> for America. I'm not going there. Um, so should the whole industry be pursuing zero, zero, zero? Should the U.S. adopt California's ban on gasoline-powered new vehicles sold from 2035 on? Uh, you know, we have our goal that by 2035, we want to have all of our light-duty vehicles be uh, electric. And we also have a great partnership with Honda where we continue, we've worked for many, many years on fuel cells. And we think that's a solution, especially for some of the heavier, heavy duty, uh, the duty cycle that's required there. I think we have to look though and make, this is something, if you think about how massive a change this is, you know, when you look today, there are what, over 250 million vehicles in the US car park alone. Uh, the average age of a vehicle is around 12 years. So we've really got to manage this very carefully because what we don't want to do is create, you know, further divides of, of you know, of affordability or, you know, somebody can't afford to, to get, you know, the vehicle that for many people is part of their livelihood. So we've set an aggressive goal, but I think we've all got to work together. Charging's a big piece of it, and that's why I'm excited. I think, you know, just this week we shared more about, you know, the partnership we have with our dealers into sometimes underserved communities or rural areas that I think is going to help as well. So there's a lot that's got to ha happen in concert and everybody's got to work together. Um, I just want to make sure we want to do this in a way where, you know, when we see EVs for everyone, it's more than a, it's more than an advertising tagline. We've got to do this in a way where no one gets left behind. On autonomous vehicles or self-driving, automated driving, however you prefer the terminology, do you still anticipate uh, generating as much as $50 billion in revenue in half a decade or so? Our, our, you know, we've said that by 2030 and our, our, plan, our, our business plan is on track. So and I, I'm, you know, again, the teams uh, at, at General Motors, I think when you look at it, we're uniquely positioned in autonomous vehicles because of our relationship with Cruise. And we have, we've been able to deeply integrate and bring the vehicle expertise along with the, the you know, I'll call it the brain of the vehicle that allows for the autonomous uh, capability and I think that's why we're in this leadership position now. So I very much believe it will, it will change the way people move by the end of this decade. Okay, so the, the two follow-ups then. Yeah. Because I, I know everybody in the room, they've been asking me to ask, you know, Argo AI goes under, others are backing off. They feel like the view is that level four and level five are too difficult to achieve. And Cruise is expanding. So what do you know that everybody else doesn't know? Well, I, I think this question is kind of interesting because when you look at what we're already doing and then you look at some of those other companies uh, that are either changing their plans or you know, don't exist, look at where their stated plans were. I mean, so you know, I, I feel we're in a leadership position and if you're involved in a company that um, is a couple years behind, what decision would you make? So I, I, I think the, the connection people are making that because that happened, that's, uh, it, you know, go to San Francisco, ride in a vehicle. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's kind of stunning to me that if that connection's being made, well, because of that, then this is gonna be slow when we're doing it and it's not. So um, I really do mean it. If you, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can work with Craig to get you in a, get you a ride because it takes you like literally two to three minutes and you understand the technology, you have confidence in the technology because it's such a confident ride. The, car, the vehicle pays attention, it knows all the traffic laws. Uh, you know, I remember I was riding the first time and we were going slow and I'm like, why are we going so slow? And they said, well, this is a school zone. And I'm like, I'm looking around, I didn't see the markings anywhere. There, and so uh, that gives you confidence as well. That, uh, so 
again, I, I really believe in the technology and you know, we're, we're continuing to develop it, uh, but where we're at, um, I, I do think it will change the way we move. So what's the path from one city to three cities to $50 billion? Uh, that is something that Kyle will share as we move forward. Okay, I look forward to hearing that. I spoke with GM CEO Mary Barra in Detroit last week at the Automotive Press Association's yearly fireside chat. I'm a member of the APA's board. If you missed the first part of that conversation, make sure to go listen to yesterday's edition of the podcast. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as Vince Bond Jr., Audrey LaForest, and Drew Goretzka for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on manufacturing, supply chain challenges, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with the Executive Vice President of Bosch North America, Paul Thomas. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.